Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books Popular Music, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Robert G. Pilkey about his book, Rock Music in American Culture, The Sounds of Revolution, published in 2012 by McFarland. For over 50 years, at least since Elvis Presley laid down those first tracks at Sun Studio in 1954, America has been in the throes of a cultural revolution that rejects conformity and homogeneity while affirming individuality and diversity. Originally published in 1986, As You Say You Want a Revolution, Pilkey provides a philosophical framework for understanding rock as the catalyst for the revolution and some of rock's biggest stars as its symbolic touchstones. In bringing together the previously segregated worlds of African-American and Southern white music, for example, along with a new unbridled sexuality, Elvis negated cultural norms and values of the past. Not too many years later, the Beatles affirmed a new set of values that embraced sexual freedom and race inclusion. Pilkey follows the revolution into the 1980s when, with the election of Ronald Reagan, a counter-movement to the revolution arose that emphasized traditional race, sex, and religious values in opposition to the gains of Rock's original revolutionary ideals. In this follow-up to the first edition, Pilkey characterizes American culture of the past 20-some-odd years as being a push and pull between traditional values of 20th century convention and the revolutionary values of individualism and diversity. Bob Pilkey lives in Claremont, California, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Bob, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Um, I'm glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about your biography first before we get into the book, please. Okay, well, it's going to relate to the book, obviously. Um, I'm originally from Baltimore, uh, not pronounced that way in Baltimore, of course, but uh, and uh, I come from a family which is really pretty artsy, uh, musically speaking, and uh, it was part of my entire environment growing up. My father played piano. I had an uncle who was a violinist in a symphony orchestra, an aunt who was an opera singer, and uh, an an uncle who taught and performed dance. And uh, so uh, music was in my background. And uh, when I started, uh, uh, I I picked up the piano myself. I took lessons, and I didn't really pick it up very well, and uh, learned to hate it really quickly. Uh, it only took me seven years to quit. <laughs> but in the process, I learned a lot about music and uh, learned the saxophone. And that's what that was. That's what my instrument became. So I joined uh, my family in this musical thing. And uh, as a kid, uh, the, the conversations in the family pretty much stemmed around music and the arts and our German culture. But uh there was a time when I uh, used, used to listen to radio at night. I put this in my book, actually. A um, mm-hmm. little episode uh, where I, uh, I couldn't find the, the stations I was look, uh, listening for, looking for. And I came upon some stuff, some music that I hadn't heard before. And it was exciting. And it sounded threatening, but I loved it. And I noticed uh, also with my family, there was some conversations going on about this music also, but it, it was disturbing to them. In fact, they even sounded a little afraid of it. And I realized, of course, it was black music. Mm-hmm. So and, are these yeah. brothers and sisters or parents? Oh, I had, I had one brother and uh, I had two parents. <laughs> uh-huh. I had at that time. But, uh, and this question about why these people, my family, were so upset about this music when they liked music so much, but they didn't like this kind of music. Well, that uh, question was in the back of my mind pretty much, you know, as I was growing up. Then uh, I went to college, University of Maryland, and studied history, philosophy, political uh, theory. And in fact, I almost had a triple major, didn't because I didn't even know what I was <laughs> going to do. But I also had at at that time to uh, to 
go to ROTC because we had the draft at that time. I figured I'd go in as a second lieutenant in the Air Force and get out and didn't know what I was going to do after that. Until in my courses in air science, they started talking about this country in Southeast Asia, which I had never heard about. And uh, and my air science instructor told us that we're going to be there uh, in the next couple of years. So prepare yourself to go to war. Well, that wasn't my plan. <laughs> uh, I had a couple of other interests which gave me a way out. One was to uh, go to seminary. I was really fascinated with the phenomenon of religion. And uh, I figured this was a cheap way to do some studying about it as well as become familiar with it. And I did. I went to a uh, uh, Lutheran seminary in Gettysburg. And although I didn't know it at the time, that's where I picked up a lot of the conceptual tools that I use in this book. Uh, I use uh, Rue of Otto an awful lot, Mircea Eliade, um, Paul Tillich, and uh, even Marshall McLuhan. Um, all that I picked up in seminary. Now, I didn't know at that time that it would become useful to me, but uh, I picked it up. And after seminary, not uh, since uh, they frowned on, the Lutherans frown, frown on atheists in the pulpit, I went to graduate school. <laughs> not knowing what else to do, and got a doctorate in, uh, I guess it was uh, social ethics, a combination of uh, political theory, moral theory, and social issues. And there's only one thing you can do with a PhD, and that's to teach. Mm-hmm. So he began teaching at uh, George Mason in Virginia. Well, uh, long about uh, uh, three or four years into teaching, uh, I happened to be watching uh, one of those pledge drives on television, and they were playing this kinescope of a concert from 1963 or 64, I think it was. It was a kind of an oldies thing. It's called uh, Don't Knock the Rock. It's not the movie of that name. It's a concert in Britain. And I uh, still remember seeing uh, Jerry Lewis perform standing on the piano, and the audience gradually creeping towards him, pawing him. And, uh, and he climbed on the piano, took his, uh, his jacket off, his tie off. And it was just a, a fantastic phenomenon to observe. And suddenly it occurred to me, this is what Rudolf Otto was talking about in terms of uh, the phenomenon, the experience of religion. And suddenly things began to kick into place here that, all these concepts, these ideas, uh, these uh, conceptual tools about religion, symbology, and so forth, I could use this. I could begin finally to understand what was going on between the relationship between uh, the music and American culture at the time. So that's when the book really uh, germinated in my mind. And it took me uh, oh several years to get it done. This is the uh, what you've got now is the second edition of this book mm-hmm. update, but the original took us several years to to put together, and it it's constructed largely around uh, the the theoreticians and uh, the philosophers that, that I picked up in seminary. So the the original came out in I believe 1986. Is that right? Yeah. Right around there. What what. Uh... You know, it's 26 years later. Why, why are you putting out another edition now? <laughs> uh, my, my daughter and my brother, um, for years have been saying, you know, all these libraries have your book and, uh, it's going to graduate. It's gradually out of going out of date. And I had sort of moved on to writing fiction at that time. And that's where my focus was. And so for years, it's just sort of, uh, sort of laid dormant. But uh, finally, uh, I finished one book of my science fiction trilogy, and I was waiting for the second one to, to, to be okayed. And and, uh, and so I finally said, well, let me give it a little try, see if I could uh, revive the book, the, the rock and roll book. And it, it, uh, it took off. I mean, I, I got several publishers who were interested in playing around with it. But of course, they all wanted me to revise it, not just simply to republish it. Right. So, um, it took about a year, I suppose, to bring mm-hmm. it all together again. Mm-hmm. But I um, had to, yeah, I'm sorry. 
uh, what have you changed? What's new? The original book? What's new in, in the second edition? Oh, uh, well, uh, first of all, I had a lot of history to catch up on. And I have a whole chapter where I've added uh, the, the, the year by year by year ever since that time in the 80s up until the present. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, also, uh, I have a section of the book which deals with media, um, the various media uh, and the way rock and roll has been expressed through those media, the radio, television, movies and so forth. But I didn't have any chapter on the Internet because it didn't exist at that time. So uh, that's a major addition to the book. And radio has changed dramatically. Television has changed dramatically. The show's on television. Rock and roll has been presented on television quite differently than it was at that time. So there was a lot of updating uh, on the existing chapters, plus the uh, the new chapters. Mm-hmm. So um, getting to the book specifically, uh, the subtitle is The Sounds of Revolution. And I believe a uh, revolution may have even been in the title of the original. You've, you've slightly changed the name. Um, uh, why is it the... Uh, What's the importance of the idea of revolution to your story? Uh, that's where the, the that little tie-in from my uh, uh, my 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 callous my callow youth comes in, where uh, I notice my parents and my relatives uh, being upset, disturbed, and somewhat frightened by this music. So uh, I had to, to, to think through, you know, what what was this music doing that, that caused them this? And uh, I came to the conclusion after a while that uh, that this re- this music is actually a revolutionary phenomenon in our culture. And uh, to do that, I, I looked, I went back into some theoreticians about the nature of music. Uh, I go, uh, I use John Blacking's um, uh, book on how musical is man, and uh, and he pointed out, among other things, that. That every culture has music, and every and music is a fundamental component of every culture. But I also remember reading in Plato uh, that Plato, and I, not not a, an easy read by any means. Uh, Plato was pretty clear in his ideal society, music was useful, but it was extremely dangerous because it can't be controlled. Now, uh, and he he felt that music in particular needs to be severely censored when, when, when it's taught, when you use it. I use it, he wanted to use it as propaganda. And it reminded me very much about the way music was used in uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, it was used as propaganda. Hitler used to say that, you know, the people may not like my ideas, but have, have a marching band come by and they'll follow. <laughs> and, uh, and that's pretty much what Plato was saying, too. Well, if music is this dangerous, what would it be in the hands of people who are really upset, who are disturbed by uh, what's going on in their society for to them? And you have that kind of uh, uh, cauldron, as I say, boiling in American culture at that time uh, with, uh, with the uh, the ending of, of, uh, of not not racism, but the ending of slavery. And the continuation of Jim Crow, uh, a sexual revolution going on, uh, uh, an unpopular war, and uh, the ingredients there were uh, was were there uh, to spark something. Music, since it's uncontrollable, uh, was used as a primary means of expression for uh, both uh, uh, the black underclass and the white underclass also. And it sort of coalesced together. This type of music became the, the, the primary mode of expression for this cultural revolution or revolution in culture. And uh, that's, that's the theme of the book, obviously. And to make that work or to make it understandable, I uh, brought in together all these other conceptual tools relating it to uh, religious experience and so forth and the nature of symbols. But so, it has a goal, you know. Uh, this, you know, as a revolution, you know, revolutions always have some kind of goal, like uh, the American Revolution, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness; uh, the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity. They both have liberty in that, but 
The American Revolutionary Triad has the pursuit of pleasure in it, too. And that was an added component. I don't think that's in any other culture uh, when they, a goal of any other culture, pursuit of happiness. And uh, all these things tied together, at least in my mind. And that's when I decided, okay, I gotta write this down. Mm-hmm. And, and you argue that, that rock and roll and rock was more than just part of the revolution. You seem to be saying, you know, rock is the revolution. It's, least, a, it's a dialectic, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously it comes from the culture, but then, uh, it has a life of its own in some ways. That's one of John Blacking's ideas too. And one of Plato's ideas too, that, uh, that this music is really literally uncontrollable. Uh, and it has, in a sense, and speaking metaphorically, a mind of its own. But, uh, and, and the people who played this music, created this music, listened to it, uh, uh, incorporated it into their, uh, their expressions, their, dis- their distrust of society, their dissatisfaction their pursuit of pleasure. So uh, it became, in a sense, uh, something that used them. It's the, the musicians are, are not just using the music. The music is using the, magi- the musicians uh, to push forward with, uh, with the goals that I see as increased freedom and individuality. And in the process, threatening a lot of the existing values in our culture. Now, are there are there moments in this revolution over the past, uh, let's say, sixty years? Are, are there moments when when these goals are are more clear and more conscious on the minds of the society as a whole? And then, are there ebbs and and, and flows there? Oh, it's uh, at least that complex, yeah. But uh, I picked two uh, two persons, and I'm not sure I'm picking them or they're picking me in some way. Uh, to, to symbolize uh, the, the dialectic of, the, of a revolution like this. And by the way, I had to pick up uh, some ideas about the nature of cultural revolutions, too. Um, that I picked up primarily from graduate school, Theodore uh, Rozak and a few other people as well. But in any case, uh, yeah, I, uh, I look at Elvis Presley as a symbol of, uh, of a, a crystallization of what, what's being rejected. Elvis didn't know what he was doing, of course, so he's not consciously a revolutionary. He wanted to be another Frank Sinatra. But uh, he, in what he was doing, whether he realized it or not, uh, he personified the rejection of a whole set of accepted values. And I finally began to see what my parents and my family was worried about. Uh, all, of their fa- all of their fundamental values were being threatened by this. Now, maybe they didn't even know that either. But uh, but they were aware of something that 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 was displeasurable about that, and uh, and you can you can take a look at and uh, and and see you know what Elvis did obviously uh, concerning sex, uh, and uh, and and race obviously. Uh, then the, but with as with every cultural revolution, not only do they reject something, but they also advocate something too. And uh, the best symbols I can think of that are the best symbol of the Beatles. Um, uh, uh, putting forward, and again, I'm not saying that they were consciously doing it either, but uh, but their form of music and what the music represented, how it felt to them, what it, what it produced in others, was a, a new set of values. And uh, exactly the only... The only perhaps self-conscious thing is uh, John Lennon's Imagine. That pretty comes pretty close to an anthem of this cultural revolution. So you don't you don't think that I think maybe as the Beatles went along, they you know, and as this whole you know civil rights movement and and hippies and all that, um, they became a little more conscious of of what they were doing. Don't you think? Yes, I think so. Much more so than Elvis did, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they were pretty self-conscious about not wanting to be uh, the leader of this. They just uh, they were doing what they thought they wanted to do. But uh, be, being conscious of being a symbol of all of this, no, I don't I don't think they were that conscious of that. And, and does it matter? I'm sorry. For the uh, does it matter for the American Revolution that you're talking about, Cultural Revolution, that the Beatles uh, were English? 
No, doesn't matter a bit. <laughs> uh, I think ultimately uh, is the cultural revolution in this country has an influence uh, and or speaks to the same type type of strivings elsewhere in the world. And uh, I know uh, I know one of the most outrageous claims I make in the book, seemingly, uh, at least I suggested in the first book, but now I'm pretty sure of it, is that um, the uh, the ending of the Soviet Union, (laughs) uh, you can draw a, a pretty clear causal line between our cultural revolution and the ending of the Soviet Union. Now that's uh, maybe sounds a bit preposterous, but uh, <laughs> and I've argued this, uh, I guess, uh, vociferously with a lot of people. But now it seems less, less, uh, less tenuous. Um, in fact, there are several people, uh, Russians themselves, uh, former Soviets, who, uh, who pretty much say the same kind of thing. There are several, uh, several books written recently. There's one called Rock Around the Block. I, I think that's a great great title, uh, which points out that rock and roll really uh, is the underlying cause of the Soviet Union's failure. And there's a few other things you can add into that, too, which I do, but uh, for any cultural revolution to succeed anywhere, uh, it's got to be able to pass on its ideals, or what, he's, what it's rejecting as what it's advocating for, has to pass it on to the next generation. Now, the Soviets saw their revolution as a cultural revolution also, but it was corrupted by, uh, by totalitarianism and uh, favoritism and uh, the ideal weren't, they weren't able to, to, to pass on their ideals to the next generation. Uh, while all they, while they were trying to teach Lenin and Marxist Leninism to their, to their young folk, their young folk were listening to rock and roll. They were listening to Lenin too. <laughs> <laughs> a different spelling, but yes. Remember the old poster, uh, uh, Lenin and Marx, uh, or, and have a picture of Karl Marx and, and, uh, and John Lennon. John Lennon. Oh. <laughs> and old Groucho Marx and John Lennon. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, thinking, uh, speaking of symbols, and I'll, I'm just going to throw this out. We could all probably come up with our own symbols, but I think I agree with you about Elvis and the Beatles and maybe the only other other artists that has reached that level might be, say, Bob Marley, who you touch on uh, yeah. generally. But, you know, t- tell me what you mean a little more about these artists are symbols. Yeah, this is something uh, I picked up from a, a theologian um, named Paul Tillich uh, from my time in seminary. And uh, he has a very, uh, he is a rather arcane writer also, but he did a short book called um, Symbols, obviously. and and I'm using his 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 concept of symbols to to uh, sort of understand how or and understand what what Elvis and the Beatles were doing as symbols. And you don't choose symbols or make them. They they, they come about because there's a drive and a desire to see through them. Uh, people will look through them to some, to see something else. Uh, and it's not, again, you can't manufacture them. This is what, you know, arises up within the, the populace. People become, things become symbols because they point to something ultimate. And, uh, Tillich, uh, has, has a way of explaining this, which makes sense to me. And, uh, both the Beatles, both, and, uh, and Elvis, not conscious of this, um, uh, and maybe didn't even like it, but, uh, but through them, uh, the, their, their audiences saw something else. And I think it, what they were looking at was an increase in freedom, uh, and individuality, which, uh, is in, we're in the process of going through that today, as a matter of fact, uh, increased freedom and individuality. And, um, symbols have to be, you know, it, it, it this is a tillic again. Symbols have to be, uh, Self-critical in some sense. They have to, uh, reject the idea that they are the ultimate, that, that they're, they embody the ultimate, the ultimate values. They point beyond themselves. Uh, and Elvis didn't self-consciously do this, but he did it anyway. He was hardly, you know, uh, if you just look at Elvis and his life and his, his deterioration, it's hardly the ideal. And the Beatles themselves, uh, 
Uh, they're not the ultimate. Um, they had a lot of great songs. They meant a lot of things. That's the most important thing to people. And uh, they were pretty much aware of their own uh, frailties as well, especially Lennon after a while. But uh, they didn't take themselves all that seriously. Uh, uh, sometimes they did, of course. But uh, they fulfilled the criteria for being genuine symbols in this Talikian sense. So that's why I picked them. I don't see any other candidates, really, and uh, come close to that. But, uh, but again, it's, it's not me choosing who the symbols are. It's what I think people have, though, the symbols that the people, everyone else has, has chosen as symbols. Do, do we have to be farther on? Do we have to look back to find symbols, or can we know if there's a symbol among us? I don't, uh, I'm not sure that you can deliberately look for them. They just happen. Well, that's, it's a, it, and it, it comes from, well, beneath. It doesn't, it's, you can't impose symbol on, symbols on people. But I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's symbols all around, but we don't really choose them that much. I mean, give the controversial symbols, you know, the, uh, and which, which puzzles people is that the continuing affection for, uh, the, uh, the Confederate battle flag mm-hmm. in the South. And it's a genuine symbol for people. Now, uh, I think there are some conceptual ways to get a, get around the, the racism and the, and the slavery there, but in any case, it's a symbol. And uh, I'm not sure anybody, you can't get rid of it. Uh, you can't simply abolish symbols uh, because people accept them as symbols. Now, you say uh, any revolution has to have a, uh, doesn't have to, but will have a counter-revolution, and you... you you. Oh, I think that, I think it does. I think, uh, this is, uh, this is the thing I picked up by, by looking at, uh, a variety of people talking about the nature of cultural revolutions that, uh, yeah, any cultural revolution will, will produce, uh, a reaction and, uh, and it will get stronger and, uh, there will be a, and either the revolutionaries, uh, adjust to that uh, or they die, uh, or the revolution dies. There's been a lot of revolutions that haven't made it, but you have to. But you have to expect a counter. And you pinpoint you pinpoint that counter revolution from my reading with the election of Ronald Reagan. I think yeah, because Reagan was a symbol uh, to a lot of people also, uh, and uh, he symbolized it, an attempt of the status quo to preserve itself and to re-express itself. Uh, whether he was a con, whether he was aware of that or not is really not the point, but that's the way people saw him. Uh, and he did function and, and still does obviously function as a, as a symbol for people. Uh, they're still looking for him, I think. <laughs> and, and, and how does rock music reflect the Reagan, uh, the symbol of Ronald Reagan? Well, uh, for, for me at least, uh, uh, the music has to, has to, uh, sort of weakened at that point. Uh, the, uh, the fervor of the revolution, uh, was, was challenged by, uh, by the, by the counter reaction. Music changed, it became a little bit more programmed, a little bit more repressed, uh, and it, uh, didn't venture anything or it didn't seem to venture anything, uh, uh, threatening or challenging to the, to the, uh, to the status quo. Um, but I think it has recovered, but, uh, and, and and I think it actually existed then too, but in, in our culture, we tended to, uh, just take one example. There was the the, the disco period. Uh, and by the way, we just lost the, uh, uh, disco inferno singer (laughs) just uh, just the other day Mm. on the tramps. But, uh, in any case, uh, yeah, it's a, the uh, rock music has to, uh, again, being the voice and, rea- and, uh, and the, the vehicle for the Cultural Revolution, or the primary vehicle, uh, it was hit hard, I think, by the, the Reagan uh, counter, counter-revolution. But again, uh, again, Reagan being a symbol of it, by the counter-reaction. But again, counter-reactions will engender a strengthening or... Uh, uh, of the, the revolution, and I think that is in progress. 
talk about uh, McLuhan's The Medium is the Message, please. That's an important, that's the second part yeah, of your book. Right, yeah. And uh, I look at various kinds of media uh, and, and the message and so forth, uh, of the, the message of rock being expressed in these various media. Um, he has a, uh, his, his stuff is really uh, challenging and uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense a lot of times. So I'm, you're, you're getting, when you read my book, you get my uh, re-expression of McLuhan. The idea is that, uh, and to, to use this little catchphrase, the medium is the message. Not so much what's being portrayed, but the medium itself says something. Uh, for uh, When his books first came out, they, they talked about uh, uh, radio and television as being primary media for Expressing political ideas, um, and they used as uh, the, the perennial example was the Nixon uh, Kennedy debates. That uh, those people who listened to the debates on the radio thought that Nixon was the clear winner, and those people who watched it on television thought that Lick, uh, that uh, Kennedy was the clear winner. And McLuhan said it's because of the medium itself, the two different media. Uh, and they they convey certain a certain information just simply by being the media. Uh, uh, people who uh, the radio medium, he said, was primarily uh, a good vehicle for expressing things, uh, hot ideas, uh, in a hot way. Uh, television, a cool medium, uh, which uh, which was better capable of expressing things. In a more moderate way, uh, cooler and uh, and more thoughtful way, and uh, more engaging. And Nixon was suited for the radio, and he was suited for television. So he used this type of approach of looking not just simply as what's being presented or said on the medium, but the medium itself. So I took that as my little thing where I talk about radio and the way rock and roll came through on the radio, the way it comes through on television uh, and records and all the various other recording things now. Uh, devices are recording, but the media has expanded there. Now, of course, I, I add the Internet, but I also deal with film as well. So uh, rock and roll, uh, it comes through differently on these different media and some types of Music are better represented, better presented, uh, or less effectively presented in different types types of media. And uh, the message is different uh, depending on the medium. So, yeah, I'm sorry. No, for instance, you, you suggest that uh, LPs were a more serious uh, form of presenting music or were taken more seriously than 45s. So yes, how, absolutely. How is that? Uh, first of all, uh, the only thing that was recorded on LPs, first of all, was classical music. Uh, uh, popular music didn't come of, uh, wasn't presented on, on LPs until several years afterwards. Uh, LPs were for, uh, for classical music and 45s, when they came out, uh, were, uh, for popular music. Uh, and of course, just the medium itself, you know, if, if you're, uh, if you're doing a song for, uh, if you're using a 45, you can't do anything that's longer than about two or three minutes. Uh, with a LP, of course, you could do something that's quite long and, uh, and, uh, quite complex. But, uh, and it was a while before rock and roll was, was, uh, put on, on LPs. At first, it was just simply, you know, just one, a whole series of song collections. But after a while, uh, the whole idea of concept albums came out, uh, developed and be- because it was available, uh, the medium changed the message of uh, popular music became more serious or more, in other words, more developed, more complex because it could, it had more space basically to work with. By the way, just a little biographical note there. The first record that I ever bought. Or our or only got I didn't buy it was given to me was a Brahms piano concerto. It was on a LP. It's just the LPs had just come out, but we didn't have anything to play it on. <laughs> uh, 
So, but my grandparents did. So we took my, my Brahms piano concerto on this plastic vinyl thing, took over to my grandparents' house, put it on their record player and put the tone arm down, which weighed about three pounds and just heard nothing but scratching. Well, we didn't realize you need a different instrument to play the record on. This was a 78 player. Um. So it just dug a groove into the pick on. So, uh, what about modern uh, modern medium of, of listening now? I mean, we, we've skipped past CDs, of course, and uh, I teach college now, so you know, I teach people that are 18, 20, 22 years old, and you know, they don't collect anything. LPs, 45 no, CDs. It's, um, how do you think that's? I don't know. One changed how how music works, and how is it? affected the revolution oh i think well in terms of uh, expressing a person's individuality there's nothing nothing more significant than this uh, now uh you don't buy cds anymore you uh you put them on your ipods and things like this but you make your own collections everybody has their own collection uh i just uh, i i've been listening to some of the collections of people that i know and uh and i've just been amazed at the uh the variety that that they have on there. They're, they're not listening just to rock. Uh, there's this one one girl that I know that uh, a young lady uh, who has a whole collection of Frank Sinatra on her thing. Uh, she's in her twenties, and uh, and various other kinds of music which I hadn't thought of either. She she even has a, a few uh, uh, unusual classical pieces there, but a, a lot of rock also. But she's uh, creating her own uh, musical venue, her own soundtrack for life. And it's not like anybody else's. Everybody has their own one, uh, their own their own soundtrack. So it's an amazing development. And it does uh, reinforce uh, the individuality that I see as a component of this cultural revolution. Uh, it encourages it. In fact, it makes it almost inevitable. And detracts maybe from the the communal music listening. I'm not so sure it does that. Uh, I, I know what you mean mm-hmm. uh, because we're all listening to our things alone here, but um, but we don't listen to things just alone. We share them. Uh, there was, of course, you know, a much easier way to do it with Napster, <laughs> at least though it might have been. But nevertheless. Uh, you could share these things. You could pick and choose. Um, the social, uh, the social medium, uh, uh, the social element of the medium is, is now, uh, from what I can see, uh, uh, from what I've observed on the internet. And you can download, you can see what's available and the internet and you can, uh, you can choose what type of programming you want. It, uh, the computer will guess for you looking for similar things. And, uh, and you suggest it to other people. Um, we're not totally isolated. We do talk about things that uh, you say, have you heard this? Like, for example, I just I just heard a group the other day that, uh, that I'm not sure how to, you know, and you know, of course, I have a real suspicions about using genre labels, but um, they were on uh, Austin City Limits, I think. And, and by the way, I do listen to Austin City Limits and Palladia and, uh, and VHS, uh, you know, Religiously, <laughs> to use that. But uh, a group called the Heart and the Mind, or yeah, the Heart and Mind. Yeah, uh, the Heart and the Mind. And I had no idea what kind of group they were, but they were on Austin City Limits, and that's kind of a, a interesting venue for them. And they were kind of a folky, rocky, bluesy um, thing. Uh, I'm not sure what genre they. They don't fit in any particular job, but they're good. So I told a variety of people about them. They tried them, and most of them like it. Uh, and so, uh, but again, the, the social element uh, is present in what we recommend uh, to others and what they recommend to us. I don't expect other people to like, to, to like exactly what I like, but I do appreciate the variety that people like. I enjoyed your section about uh, record stores because I, I do uh, I'm old enough to to 
look back fondly at, I would, you know, I would go and just hang out in a record store for oh, yeah. hours on end, yeah. especially used record stores. Absolutely. Do you, uh, do you still do that? There aren't too many in my <laughs> small town, but when I, when I travel, I, I usually, I, I try and find, especially again, used record stores or CD stores yeah. to, and, and, you know, talking with the people who work there. Um, is anything replaced that, do you suppose, at this point? Oh, uh, well, those, those stores are an anachronism uh, now, but, uh, but there are a few around. There's one in uh, Claremont where I live and, uh, and I think one or two in Pasadena, not too far away. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's a record. It's something of the past. Um, uh, but, but again, nothing lasts forever. No, and you even you suggest I think in chapter eight that computerization has led to the obsolescence of categorization. Yes. What does that mean? Well, like I was just saying, you know, if 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 you, people choose whatever they want to to play, uh, I mean, and they'll they'll download it or whatever, and you, and you can create your own your own collection of music. But uh, the people that are now producing music. Um, realize that uh, the, the artists themselves, uh, they're not restricted to their own particular genre, uh, because the people will, will uh, people will choose their something that they've done that's a little bit different. They're, they're not restricted. The people are not going to encounter, uh, the people that they used to encounter their music are no longer restricted by, uh, the things that are available for sale on CDs. They can go to the internet and and come up with a whole variety of things. So it it, it expands what what artists themselves can do. And uh, and when they do something a little bit different, uh, they move out of their genre classification, and it makes it uh, almost meaningless to to use some of these genre labels. Although I think they are useful, but I I don't think they reflect really the reality. And I think I mentioned yeah I do mention the book. Uh, a Sam Gunn's documentary, uh, Headbangers Journey, uh, and and his continuing uh, on VHS, his continuing thing on Metal Evolution, and he's uh, he has you know a, a genre labels of a twenty some labels for different types of of heavy metal, and after a while becomes almost self destructive to try to to classify them because they're so different. Uh, he has uh, grunge for one for one category within heavy metal, and I would never have thought of putting grunge in there. But uh, but the whole the whole area of heavy heavy metal for him has pretty much dissolved because you've got twenty or thirty now different labels or different genres that fit under heavy metal, and uh, some of some of these genre labels only have one member in it. <laughs> In fact, he makes a distinction between, I think, uh, well, let me turn down my phone. He, uh, he makes a distinction between, uh, sorry about that. Okay. Uh, makes a distinction between, uh, Swedish death metal, metal and Norwegian death metal. Well, uh, that, that's carrying it to such an extreme that, uh, it's a lot that Sorry about that. It's okay. Okay. So yeah, uh, the uh, as as people in these various genres, so to speak, uh, expand what they're doing, uh, the the genre labels basically disappear and become almost meaningless. Now we still use them. We still use those terms, but uh, but we should understand them as being vague. They're uh, they're not. Real rigid barriers as they used as they used to be. Um, they're not they're not categories that are they're, they're have solid walls, so to speak. Although I remember uh, when uh, as a kid, as we were first listening to this uh, new music, rock and roll, which didn't really have quite a name like that. Uh, but uh, we uh, when we went to when we went to dances or listened to, to people uh, playing on the radio. There was a, a mixture of uh, country music along with, uh, it wasn't even called that, it was called hillbilly music, uh, along with rock and roll. I remember one of the records I bought, uh, 45s, was White Sport Coat and a Pink Carnation. Uh, 
clearly a country song, but it was, we considered it rock and roll at the time. So the labels at the beginning, you know, were questionable. They solidified as time went on, but now they're loosening up and practically becoming a, a, a proliferation of, of labels and, and mm-hmm. self-destructing. And talk just a little bit more than uh, to switch a little bit about uh, the way uh, ways in which a rock experience is similar to a, a religious oh. experience. You've touched on it, but if you can explain a little more. Yeah, um, one of the primary uh, primary features of the religious experience, according to Rudolf Otto, is this utter total fascination with something, so much so that you're virtually absorbed into it. Uh, at the same time, it's horrifying and awesome. It's this paradoxical quality that uh, that you know that that's characteristic of virtually every religious experience. Uh, and Otto talks about not just simply uh, Christianity, but all the other religions that he's familiar with as well. And uh, it's that kind of thing that uh, that I saw that one that one. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis performance where there the, uh, the the audience was utterly drawn into absolutely absorbed by uh, by Jerry Lee Lewis at the same time you could see on their faces uh, uh, almost uh, you know an, um, a fear of what they were doing losing control uh, and yet they were doing, they were doing both they wanted to be there they were afraid to be there and that happens. It doesn't happen every time at every concert, but a concert venue is where you'd be most likely to see something like this. And I've been to enough conferences, like uh, enough concerts to uh, to see some of that, at least enough to know that, yeah, that, that pretty much uh, is what the experience is like. And you associate... Um... Elvis with dread and the Beatles with fascination. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I, it's again, uh, I'm, I'm using labels myself here, but, but in in sort of the the uh, the overall Elvisness of of that of that moment, um, he did ex- uh, uh, he did produce dread in people, uh, and as much and fascinations as well. But the dread was. Would, seem to predominate. That's what I saw in my parents and my family. Uh, they they saw that there was something of, of considerable power in Elvis and in importance and significance. But again, it scared them. Uh, and I think it scared some of the kids too that who or, or that I knew at the time. Uh, but they liked it. But it was it was scary. Uh, there was all there was all sorts of the costumery and the behavior and the language and everything that went along with this, but it was uh, it was a it was a uh, it was awesome in that sense, and I mean in the sense of awe. And uh, the, the Beatles seemed less so. Uh, yes, they were scary in some ways too, but they smiled a lot and they seemed like nice comic guys with a good sense of humor. Uh, they didn't seem as uh, Terrifying in some senses, as Elvis did. So uh, yeah, I just I, I use that 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 paradox. Both Elvis and and, uh, and the Beatles are, are the paradigms of rock and roll, and they exemplify this dual character, the religious experience. And you mentioned that the success of the revolution is tied to the success of women within it. How how is this going? Oh. Uh, I think it's going pretty well. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, of one, of any one area in rock and roll where women haven't participated, uh, as much as, uh, significantly less. It's probably metal. Uh, there aren't many women metal, metal groups. Uh, I, I think of maybe the, the, the runaways were kind of punky and, and didn't last all that long. Heart, of course, is, is there and kind of heavy. But uh, it's kind of kind of hard pressed to see, you know, where where women uh, are represented in the same numbers there. Uh, nevertheless, um, just that that's just I guess maybe the, a, a small portion of this. 
the role of women and the rights of women in society has uh, increased enormously. And you can see now from the reaction to uh, by some people trying to uh, to limit the rights of women to uh, contraceptives in, in, the, in the news, of course, has engendered a considerable reaction. Uh, and by the way, that I think is maybe a small portion of the counter-reaction and the response to the, to the counter-reaction. But um, the overall revolution, uh, again, is, is uh, concerned with freedom. And freedom means choice. And freedom also means rights. Uh, and, and that's what's expanding. And the role of women, the rights of women, the opportunities of women has expanded enormously also. Uh, to say nothing of uh, the, the the movement away from Jim Crow and racism. Uh, yeah, it still exists, obviously. But uh, the world now is so much different, or this country is so different than it used to be in the 50s. I still remember the whites-only signs uh, and colored-only, obviously. So uh, it's been a dramatic change. And in some ways... Speaking of freedom uh, as the primary goal, this is a profoundly conservative uh, so a cultural revolution, and I mean conservative in the sense of uh, the embody of pressing forward with rights, as opposed to simply focusing on what uh, individual interests are. Uh, so, and and that's what moves things along. I think that that ult- that ultimate goal, striving for freedom to expanding rights, expanding individual rights. And it's happening around the world, uh, wherever rock has its, uh, has its way. <laughs> and then you wrap up the book by, in the epilogue discussing Hegel's distinction with, in, with being and no, nothingness. How does, <laughs> how does that relate to your story? Uh, being and nothingness, uh, it's, again, that, that dialectic uh, that, that's present within religion. But uh, in Hegel's notion, the, the, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a triadic uh, movement throughout history. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, a, going from a pre- presenting an idea to against the idea, or to, the ideas developed against it, the antithesis, and then something merging, coming into being as a result of the, the conflict between the thesis and the antithesis. Um, and uh, I see that as kind of a, a movement, uh, an underlying movement. Not that I buy into Hegel's metaphysics or anything like that, but, uh, but uh, this, this, this threefold movement, uh, I, I find interesting as a way of looking at things. It's not the way things really are, but it's the way I look at it. And, and um, so, so how is the revolution now, Bob? You, you mentioned you think it's still going. Where, oh, uh, where can we see this? Uh, well, like any cultural revolution, it's uh, it's everywhere. And this is not a, this is not a political revolution. It's not a a, a mere change of uh, politics or something like that. It's uh, it takes place everywhere within the culture. Big places, little places, large venues, small venues. Uh, when individuals uh, choose to, uh, to listen to, to whatever they want to uh, and, and no longer uh, buy a piece of music because it has a particular label on it. Uh, that's a bit of individuality being expressed. Uh, where people uh, in, in, in larger issues uh, uh, want to have uh, you know, a greater amount of choice in terms of uh, their preferences for the pursuit of happiness. I think it's taking place there. Uh, I think, you know, and again, I think some people think this is a bit frivolous, but uh, again, the movement to legalize marijuana, I think is uh, in evidence of this taking place. Um, and the sexual revolution, which is had uh, called a sexual revolution for uh, since the 1960s, it's basically the idea that uh, we should have a right to pursue sexual pleasure for its own sake, not because it uh, achieves anything else, just simply because it's pleasurable. That idea itself is revolutionary. And it's pretty much adopted today, except for a great deal number of people who are within the counter-reaction who feel that uh, 
sex is only proper in certain for certain reasons, uh, not in and of itself. So if you look at sex, you look at race, you look at uh, uh, drugs, and it, in fact, you're talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if you look at, at these large social issues or the so-called cultural issues, uh, in, in a large sense, or when in individual so individual behavior, I think it's taking place. In fact, I don't think you can stop it. Is it the same revolution that they they uh, does it does it map along the lines politically of conservative and liberal? Where you know on on Fox News you may hear somebody saying you know we're in the the midst the, the left wants a cultural revolution and we don't. Uh, I don't think it's quite that clear, although uh, what they talk about it in terms of social or culture issues, culture issues or cultural issues. Uh, and uh, with the traditional view of family, the traditional view of sex and uh, and and politics, role of women and so forth. Uh, I don't think there are that many people that that uh, that adhere to the very traditional points of view. Uh, and I'm not sure I want to just say they're all on the Fox network, <laughs> but uh, maybe 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 they are. Maybe a large one portions of them are. But uh, it's not that they're all sort of so to speak revolutionaries on MSNBC either. Oh, there's a there's a few people who are obviously, and uh, so you can line it up Fox versus MSNBC. But uh, there are other stations, you know, there are other channels, there are other networks, but, uh, and I don't think you line it up so much within the Republican Party either, or the Democratic Party, um, and this is another issue entirely, but uh, the, strictly speaking, historically, both the liberal, both the Republican and Democratic parties are liberal parties, down to their core, uh, it just so happens there are two different kinds of liberals, um, the uh, the Republican Party is based in classical liberalism, Adam Smith, classical liberal, and the Democratic Party uh, comes out of the utilitarian movement, uh, welfare liberalism. Or, so it's a uh, but two different kinds of liberalism. There aren't any conservative parties here. Uh, there, the conservatives uh, sort of died out with the founding fathers. Conservatives emphasize rights, and liberals emphasize uh, interests. In terms of making their judgments, I'm not sure I'm wandering <laughs> off there, but <laughs> I have an excellent, excellent article that you might want to read on that. <laughs> well, that's a good transition for for the the conclusion to our interview. What uh, you mentioned that you 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 write fiction. Uh, what else do you do, Bob? And what are you working on? Well, that's uh, I'm in the midst of this trilogy. the The first book is out. Uh, it's a it's a science fiction trilogy. Uh, emphasizing time travel, alternate history, and uh, double first contact. Uh, first one is out, uh, done by a very, very tiny press, uh, and w with no publicity whatsoever. But it's got pretty good reviews from readers and, and reviewers. Uh, and what's it called? Uh, a New Birth of Freedom, colon, The Visitor. Now, the next one is being published by... Uh, a bigger press, uh, Whiskey Creek Press, and uh, it's called A New Birth of Freedom, The Translator. And the third one's going to be called The Historian. And uh, it, it does concern double first contact. You know, that means uh, we, we contact, uh, the, uh, we're contacted by species or uh, aliens which have never encountered another life form themselves. So we're both new at it. But it also takes place during the Battle of Gettysburg, <laughs> uh, and a, with a time traveler. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm working in I'm uh, I'm working on the third version of that, on the third volume of that now. Perfect. Well, um, thanks, Bob, for for being on the show. It's a, it's a great book. It's uh, it's nice to see such high flutin theory being placed on, what, <laughs> on, on, on something as as I don't know. Mundane is rock and roll. It, it it works. It makes those of us who are fans feel better about ourselves that we're doing something real and something serious. Well, you're probably you're probably familiar with Real Marcus's book. Uh, yes. History Train. Uh, yes, fabulous book. Yes, it is. Uh, 
almost as fabulous as mine. <laughs> almost. Well, thanks again, Bob, and we appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a conversation with Robert Pilkey about his book, Rock Music in American Culture, The Sounds of Revolution, published by McFarland in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Marmon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>